Hello and welcome to TNT, the technology and things podcast. Your host, Paul Ferraro, is a former IT exec and currently a technology advisor. Jeff Kruger, a fellow technology enthusiast, is the co-host. They both spent many years working for a Fortune 500 company and are both passionate about leadership, technology and the community. Welcome to another edition of Technology and Things. I am uh, joined today uh, by John Carruthers, who uh, has been on our program. Uh, he was actually our second guest, I think, and uh, and then he was a panelist. We did a security roundtable, and, uh, and now he's actually a co-host. So I think next time you hear him on here, he'll be replacing me. Yeah, I've come full circle. Very excited. So uh, super glad to have John Carruthers here. Uh, to help me out with this discussion. Thank uh, you, with, Paul. Yeah. Appreciate I, it. I, so, you know, uh, uh, Moody uh, Elbiati and uh, Neil Deswani are, are with us, and uh, they wrote a book called Big Breaches. And uh, when I got a copy of the book, I immediately thought of John Carruthers because I went, I definitely mm. need some help with this. This is uh, some pretty heady stuff. And uh, I knew he would be great. And so he is, uh, he's loaded with... Uh, yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Um, big breaches is kind of my thing. Or it you, was my thing. Yeah, yeah. you dealt with yeah. some big breaches in your yeah, time. Yeah, I was in the FBI. And in fact, that was when I was first on this podcast. It was as an FBI agent, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And now I, I work with you, Paul. And so... You, you've really moved up in the world. I've, yeah, I, I don't know what happened where I went where I went sideways, but somehow, some way, I'm now with you. Maybe so. or I've moved up. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's that. We'll we'll, we'll focus on that on that side. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But anyways, Neil and and Moody, thank you for joining us today. It's great to great to see you guys. Thank you. And and thanks for Pleasure coming. Pleasure to be on. here. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into this, uh, Moody and Neil. I want to just get right to it. What when you guys? Why do we need another security book? I'm I'm dying to know. I feel like there's a million books. What was it that you guys were sitting there, around the table, thinking, there's something that we have that hasn't been touched on? You know, maybe you can give us a, a glimpse into, into that beginning of that book. So I'd be happy to chime in on that. Uh, there are many security books out there. There's many security books that speak to security professionals. This book is the security book for non-security people for the most part. So it uh, tells the stories of many of the past breaches and provides advice on cybersecurity to everyone. And so that's, uh, that's I think, the key contribution that this book makes. Yeah, that, that and makes I sense. think the yeah. other part, I'll buy that. I think the, the other part of it was, um, and maybe there's two angles of this. One of them was we we definitely wanted to try to make some attempts to reach the non you know the ton, the non technical executives and companies. Uh, the more and more we, that we we're seeing security, it's truly becoming it is really becoming a company problem. And I think early on, security was an IT issue. It was something that was dealt with at a lower level. And and one of the things we want to do is, what we're seeing is, A, it's a company problem. And it's a company problem that requires all the executives to work together. And the other side of this is that we wanted to try to arm non-technical executives with the foundation, kind of the framework for how to actually 
how to have the conversation with security professionals and the security technologists. Um, so I think that was part of it. And, you know, the other part, Neil, that I think, I think is also important in terms of with, for, it's also written with security teams in mind is that I imagine as part of the writing process, Neil and I talking about, as we were going through this, we were talking about having discussions about, well, in this scenario, what would we have done? Right, and we approached we approached the um, we approached the book from both from a CISO perspective as well as a CTO perspective, and I think one of the things that I I'm really really hopeful for is that technology teams would get would get the book and they would actually be able to discuss to discuss these different scenarios whether it was the target breach or uh, JP Morgan Chase and just talk about okay what happens in this scenario what should we do or based on what would happen here how well how are we prepared to handle this. So part of it is it could be like a great tool for having a dialogue and an invitation just to have this discussion. And I think one of the things I enjoyed the most in the writing process was really having this, and honestly, some debates about with Neil about like, well, I'm not sure I would do that. Or that doesn't, that sounds too good for a textbook, but in real life, we would do something differently. And I think that's a, that's kind of the invitation for uh, that. We want the teams, the security team specifically and the technology teams to have. No, that's great. I, and I, I, I did, I do like how you have you have some you bring in the real world leadership aspects into into play, right? What are what's what is the board involved in? You know, what are the leaders doing? You know, so you kind of cover both the technical aspects yeah. and you bring in the the organizational part of the you know company into it as well. Yeah, you know, hey guys, great answer, good summary too. Um, as we're preparing for this podcast, and Paul said, "Hey, you got to read this book," and I, I get the book, and it was it's massive, right? <laughs> I'm like, no, what am what are you doing to me? But as I started digging in, I was like, "This is a, this is an actual joy. Uh, it's a great book." What I I actually took a note and I said, "This book is literally one stop a one stop education uh, experience for those interested in you know cybersecurity, information security." So, uh, kudos, great job on that. Um, on that note, did you, you consider? Yeah, absolutely. Did you consider like almost like multiple volumes? Like you're tackling a heck of a lot of information in one book. I mean, is this on the on the horizon? So you know, John, you're you're. Uh, by the way, uh, I really appreciated the quote that you put together Absolutely. in summary of the book, yep. um, and especially given your background in the FBI, having seen a number of these breaches from. Um, angles that uh, Moody and I haven't uh, been as exposed to as being um, in the roles that we have. Um, I think one of the things that we, we wanted to do is also just uh, tell, tell the stories. Uh, there's a lot that can be learned through stories. And one of the things, Paul, to what you were saying is we have two chapters in the book. There's one chapter in, in, in the second half of the book. The first half of the book, of course, focuses on the stories behind all the biggest breaches. But in the second part of the book, there's two chapters, one that speaks to members of the boards of directors and CEOs. And then there's a chapter right after it that speaks to CISOs, CIOs, CTOs. And basically, we, we give them advice for how to talk to each other and how to have this discussion around cybersecurity. So we encourage the board members to focus on some of the, the higher level aspects. Uh, Moody did a great job in bringing this concept of uh, care into the book, uh, what security controls are consistent, adequate, um, 
and so on. And then in the, in the follow-up chapter, we give advice to technologists to focus on stories and then back them up with metrics. So the, and we encourage both sets of readers to read both of those chapters so they, they, they know what to expect from each other when talking about cybersecurity at the board level. And, and we did not, to be clear, we did not intend it to be, um, as we were not solving for making it a large book. I think Neil and I were shocked when the, the publisher was like, hey, I think it's 400 and something. I'm like, there's got to be a mistake. <laughs> um, but ultimately, I was like, okay, I guess I guess that was the case. But really, I think that, um, you know, maybe one could argue you're getting two books in one. One is really providing... And I think for anyone who wants to, an introduction to security, for us to be able to kind of outline some of these major breaches, it's almost like a historical perspective on some of the biggest breaches that impacted, uh, that impacted, uh, especially in, really in, in, in the United States. Um, so there's that kind of, it's, it's now like a kind of like a one place, a one place to go and get that grasp, that depth of the understanding. The other part um, is just kind of a whole other book, really, which is really how do you, how do you protect your own organization? So one is learn about all these things. And I love the, I love the, um, the quote that, you know, if history doesn't repeat itself, I think it was Mark Twain who said, if history doesn't repeat itself, it surely rhymes. I'm, I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but there's definitely, there's definitely a whole lot of rhyming that as we kind of took this broad view and looked at all these breaches, clearly there is a pattern that happens over and over again. And a part of this kind of the biggest contribution I would say is, Hey guys, here are the patterns that we're seeing. Here's what we learned by deciphering and breaking down all these breaches. You know, I think you might want to read this because there may be a this there may be a pattern here that could actually impact your own organization. Yeah. And and it's not a one size fits all. So part of it is, you know, here's here are the, here are the things that are constantly rhyming. You know, you might want to assess yourself against this and see where are the gaps in your organization and how do we use this as a way to motivate. And again, nothing else, just start the conversation. A lot of it is really around the CISO and the CIO or the CTO really becoming that storyteller, being able to advocate and share the story, not necessarily being fear driven, but be able to share the stories of here's what happened in these broad, large organizations. Some spend hundreds of millions of dollars and here's what happened. How can we protect ourselves? Yeah. You know, when Moody and I set out to write this book, we were thinking that maybe it should be about a 300 page book. And initially we were thinking about, okay, maybe two thirds of the book should be about some of the biggest breaches and the stories and histories behind them. And then the, the remaining third should provide uh, advice. And initially what we wanted to do is we just wanted to help get more people into the field. So there's a, uh, a chapter at the end of the book on how you can apply your skills to get into the field of cybersecurity. Uh, you don't have to be a master technical hacker to enter the field of cybersecurity. I think one of the problems is that there's so many other parts of an organization that need to move to achieve security. And that's one of the reasons we need people with more diverse skills. Um, so the, 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 the other thing that we did is we, we uh, Moody was great uh, about serving, you know, his audiences. And I also surveyed some of my audiences. And one thing that those audiences told us was that uh, there is not a book that has cybersecurity lessons for everyone. Um, you know, where everyone includes, you know, uh, people at the board level, at the CEO uh, level, uh, security and technology professionals. Uh, we also have advice for investors uh, on where to pour money into cybersecurity going forward. 
And so when we expanded that scope to really involve everyone is when the when the book grew. And I think in the initial drafts, maybe it was at 330, 340 pages. Uh, and then when the publisher kind of put in the final template, we, we got back this proof that was 470 <laughs> some odd pages. We were we were both surprised. Uh, but the, the hope uh, is that, uh, you know, for, for folks that uh, buy the book, they are they are to an extent getting getting two books in one, as Moody mentioned. You, you mentioned, uh, Neil, about kind of the, the investor community and, and some of the, you know, it kind of leads me to my question around um, the security companies that are that are all trying to help protect all these businesses, right? And governments and things like that. And, it, you know, and the, and the security field is daunting, right? You mentioned, you know, people trying to get into the field. I, I definitely see that. It's, it's, a, it's sort of a, there's a lot of crazy acronyms and I feel like, you know, just so I'm relatively, you know, new in the in sort of working in the security space, and it just it is daunting for sure. And and, and the ba- yeah, oh, I was I was gonna say, you know, it, it is indeed daunting, and and the background behind the chapter on advice to investors, uh, cybersecurity investors, came out of after I finished up my my last two CISO gigs at LifeLock and at Semantics Consumer Business Unit. Uh, I spent some time advising uh, Benamu Global Ventures. Eric Benamu is the former CEO at 3Com years from years ago, and I also spent some time as an executive in residence at Trinity Ventures. And what 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 I what I did in that in those experiences and all this made its way into the chapter is I analyzed where the $45 billion of investment in cybersecurity to date has gone thus far. And given that there have been so many breaches, it's clear that something is not working. Um, so what, um, and, and you know, in, in reviews that Moody did, we were able to advance the quality of that, but basically we identified that say $11 billion has gone into the field of network security. Um, and there's some areas in cybersecurity that are overinvested. There's some that are sufficiently invested and there's some that are underinvested. Uh, so things like uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain, there's about 10 billion that's gone into that area, com- you know, compared to 11 billion for network security, a necessary yeah, but yeah. not sufficient defense. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you carry away, maybe, maybe we don't need to invest more. There hasn't been as much that's come out in that area besides Bitcoin. Uh, but there's areas like Internet of Things security. There's areas such as, um, you know, uh, cloud security. These areas, you know, need more, more investment. I think IoT security needs more investment than cloud security. But that's pretty much where that, where that chapter came out of. Yeah, it just seems like, uh, you know, these you know basically everybody's on their own to some extent trying to figure out the best tools the right things to to use for their company and then you know best of luck to you and there's all these you know there's 3000 security companies all kind of vying for you know for their money and stuff like that but i i don't know i just feel it just seems a little bit like uh wild west and um you know yeah um, I, it indeed I, was I'll wild west. <laughs> oh, go ahead, John. No, I was going to say. I mean, this is um, you know, kind of a uh, a, a good segue into an, another thing that I really liked about the book was your use of analogies. I'm a big fan, right? I mean, it's it's very relatable, and I think that's good for the audience that you intended this for. Um, 
I, I want to dive into that just a little bit. Um, you had talked, used the seatbelt analogy uh, at one point, I think early on in the book, and I think the initial challenge with seatbelts, right, was to get the government to regulate the use of seatbelts. You know, so then we did that. Then, then I think the next challenge became getting people to actually use them, right? And so now we're starting to see these parallels. And then now it's back to the car makers. Like, how do we engineer and design the best possible seatbelt? So my question to kind of dig a little bit deeper is how do you guys translate that to cybersecurity? And kind of to your point, Paul, like we, we are trying to build a better mousetrap, right? And so, I mean, do, what are your thoughts on that, like making that parallel? Sure. You, who do you want to take that or shy? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think I was, uh, I, I think I would, I would focus on a couple of things in my mind while Paul, you were saying, you know, there's a lot of players, there's, there's definitely a lot in the marketplace. And I, I, I certainly, and, and this is probably one of my biggest ahas from the book process was that the, the real principle and kind of for, for, for the listeners of this podcast today, if there's anything I could just say, it's that practice the fundamentals every single day is the best way to go. Okay, there's all the sizzle, there's all these amazing things, everything has the word AI in it, everything has the word machine learning in it, all this stuff. But what, what it comes down to it for me, at least, is um, it's, you know, if you want to use a basketball analogy or the seatbelt analogy, right, just to stick with the, the seatbelt analogy, it really is about, you know, you could save a lot of lives by just buckling the damn seatbelt every single time, yeah. consistently bucking the seatbelt. Right now, could you get fancy in a Mercedes S-Class, the, the seatbelt comes, you know, it runs by itself and, yeah, and you know, harness, basically you don't right? have to pull yeah. it yourself. Yeah, because it's like so important that, you know, you can't grab it yourself. It grabs it for you. It's like, okay, sure, like do that. But the fundamental thing is just put the seatbelt on. Yeah. Whether it's whether it has a nice fluffy thing in the middle of it, whether you know, so I think in security, I think there's many ways of there's a lot of tools you can buy, there's a lot of confusion, there's all these things, but the fundamentals that we go into in the book are to me are like that's eighty or ninety percent of the battle, right? And a lot of the breaches we see, there was like one of the fundamentals, you guys. It wasn't like, um, and it, so in my mind, and this is where uh, I'm curious to see if I can get Neil to. Uh, to disagree with me here on this one, in my mind, I'd rather have a very basic tool that is fully deployed, that team knows how to operate it and run it. I would rather have that much more than some machine learning tool that the team doesn't know how to do it. It's spinning off so much, so much noise that they just ignore it. And they didn't have enough, but it was so expensive that they can't afford to fully implement it. And it's so complicated that you don't have the right engineering people to run it. I, for me, I'd rather, I would rather simple, uh, I very much follow the, you know, um, boring technology. Security needs some good old fashioned boring technology that's consistent, predictable, that just works, that people know how to respond and support it rather than some fancy thing. Now, some, you know, some security vendor may not like all of that, but in my mind, like day in and day out, you guys having that kind of those fundamentals of just practicing that daily is so much more important than something else. You know, I think I think getting the basics right is indeed uh, super, super important. And Moody, I want to return to something that we were talking about earlier with regards to patterns, right? We've analyzed in the book so many mega breaches uh, and 9,000 other reported breaches to date. So whether it was Target, JP Morgan Chase, OPM, Equifax, Yahoo, Capital One, Facebook, whoever was getting breached, uh, between that and the 9,000 other reported breaches, it turned out that there were six root causes at the heart of them. And those six root causes are phishing, malware, software vulnerabilities, third-party compromise or abuse, unencrypted data, and inadvertent employee mistakes. If you focus on putting in 
basic countermeasures to thwart those six root causes of breach, you will be in a amazingly better place. Uh, your chances of getting breached will significantly, significantly reduce by, by getting the basics right. Uh, to, to, to also just talk a little bit about seatbelts, you, you, you know, the seatbelt to us seems obvious, straightforward, you know, the most basic thing. I think there was also an evolution over time. It was, you know, if you look at when cars were first invented um, to when Volvo introduced the first lap and shoulder seatbelt as we know it today, um, you know, in the, uh, we have the exact year in the book, I believe it was in the uh, 50s or 60s. Um, but basically, uh, that had to come to fruition. It was first an optional, it was an optional feature on most cars. And it was 10 years after that, that federal regulation was put in place saying that you need to wear it. So, uh, you know, what seems basic to us today uh, may have mm. seemed, you know, more complicated, like, well, why would you put the seatbelt? It wasn't even socially acceptable in the 60s and 70s. I mean, even in the um, 80s, it, you know, that's a great point, Neil. I mean, even in the 80s, I remember growing up, it was generally not used that much then, mm -mm. you know? Yeah, uh, the car it, wasn't dinging at you and things like that. Yeah, it took me months to get my parents to use the seatbelt after I took my, uh, my driver's ed I didn't classes. think about it like that. That's almost like 100 yeah. years of the car, yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> practically. So that was a great answer. Time. Great so answer. My, my take moving. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, Neil. Oh, I, I was just going to say the hope is that the moves, the world's moving faster today. But but yeah. you look at the big breaches that are still taking place, and um, you know like. maybe maybe we're still, maybe we're still in the midst of discovering Perhaps, right. you know what should be the basics. Right. So Moody Moody, I think about got me about halfway there towards disagreeing with them. I really wanted you guys to <laughs> so I wanted a balanced position. Yeah. I wanted to see a fight. Yeah, a little virtual uh, little virtual <laughs> Zoom slap fight. Yeah, my oh, takeaway well, we there. We had a lot of good debates as we were writing the book, I'll tell you. I bet. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk to Zoom and get some of those uh, e emojis and I, going. Um, I, yeah, my, my takeaway with all that, Paul, first of all, guys, great answer. And, Paul, I think there's an opportunity here for seatbelt automation to, uh, to Moody's point. So um, we're going to do it, not you. We're going to make the big bucks with the seatbelt automation. Yeah. So. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I had a qu question about encryption, Neil. You mentioned encryption as one of the things that uh, – I guess I'm assuming not not having things encrypted led to some issues, right? So yes, absolutely. Is that like whenever I think about encryption, you know, typically, you know, software based encryption, you turn on, you know, it's sort of like it's good if you don't have access to the application, right? It's sort of like if you're coming in from the outside and you try to go attack the data, it's encrypted. Okay, then then it worked. But if you go in through the application, the encryption doesn't really work because you have access to the, you know, you've sort of hacked in through that way or something. Is there, That's right. if, I was okay. curious, like what you found in looking at that, what, what kinds of encryption does work? Are there some that work better than others as far as how it's set up? Sure. Happy to talk about encryption. So by the way, you're exactly right. If you can take over somebody's account, uh, say through phishing or another form of account takeover, um, and you have that person's credentials and they have access to the data, uh, the application, the operating system, everything will happily decrypt all of the data and give it to you. And there's been a bunch of breaches like the Anthem breach and whatnot where database administrator credentials were stolen and the systems happily decrypted all the data for, for the attackers. So one of the things that I'll mention 
uh, at a macro level is when we when we looked at the 9,000 reported breaches, the categorization that say privacyrights.org gave, you know, these breaches, if you look at those, you know, phishing and malware seemed like it might be the biggest issue, but there were actually more smaller breaches that happen due to unencrypted data than even phishing or malware. So if you take into account the fact that there's many portable devices that have been lost or stolen, uh-huh. uh, and sometimes there's just media, papers or hard disks where the, 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 the hard disks got lost or stolen along the way, the number of breaches that happen due to the fact that data was simply not encrypted is actually more than all of the attackers' hacks, at least in the you know, 15, 16 year, year period that we looked at. So I would encourage uh, CISOs and CTOs and CIOs to, to just turn on disk level encryption as a very basic thing, whether it be file vault on Macs, BitLocker on Windows, um, or, or just have you know mobile device management that has people put pins on all their phones. All of that will encrypt the data at a storage layer so that when these things get lost, there is no reportable breach. I will also say though, that typically if you look at cloud environments, the storage layer encryption, what it protects against is people stealing disks out of data centers, which happens, but doesn't happen uh, as often as some other causes of breach. And so for that, you do need to encrypt at the application layer. Um, And from a technical perspective, you should have that application layer encryption done and used by by a service account that is not touched by humans. If you want to, if you want to be, uh, you know, as uh, as as unbreachable as possible. So, so that's a little bit about encryption. Yeah, cool. No, thank you for that, Neil. Yeah, Love it. I think there was a there was a story a few years ago where the, these big um, these big multifunction copiers, where all the all these copiers they have hard drives, and basically in the hard drives there was thousands, tens of thousands of all the documents because there were it was just like a temporary file and unencrypted and you could get these copiers basically for free and see all yeah. kinds of information wow. about like basically scan data uh, right it just yeah. it's all the scan data it's like, a big like you could just yeah. see, and for years and years and years of of information um, that can just be gleaned from the hard drives on those copiers that were being thrown away that is a great story in fact i think that you know beyond beyond encryption the other the other um important thing to do is in security configuration for any such devices, it's, it's better to just not store it, right? If there's a configuration setting where you could just tell the copier, don't store, don't archive all the scans, uh, then if they aren't stored, then they can't be lost or stolen or breached. So there's an important concept of data minimization. Uh, don't store it and you can't get breached. That sounds like my vet with my. They won't. They won't store my credit card, and they every time I have to give it to them, they go, "We we don't want to store it." And I go, "It would be so nice if you did, but yeah. I, I understand." <laughs> my life would be so much. <laughs> Their easier. life would be hell yeah. probably yeah. storing credit cards. Exactly. <laughs> to further. Who knows? Hell. Maybe maybe in a maybe in ten or twenty years when there's more seatbelts, uh, the equivalent of seatbelts deployed out there, um, then then they can be stored, uh, and we can get the convenience well, and the security. Yeah. But we're, we're just not there right That'll now. That'll be after Paul and I do the uh, seatbelt automation. Um, venture. So, (laughs) so, you know, one of the breaches of many that you talked about was the Capital One breach. And you noted that uh, you you talked quite a bit about an amateur, and I believe her name was Erratic. Um, That's right. Yep. 
um, breaching essentially their cloud space. And um, so now we've got, I mean, anybody who is who has picked up a paper or looked at a website now knows that the nation state threat is significant, right? And it's a real threat. But then you're talking about erratic, which I don't know, maybe we'd call that an, am- an amateur threat, but still a lot of damage was done. How, how should companies prepare differently for both erratic and that nation state sophisticated threat, if that makes sense? So there's a, there's a saying in the security community and that's uh, attacks only get better. And uh, going back 20 years ago, we had to deal with the, the lone amateurs that would write worms like Code Red, Nimda, SQL Slender, Script Kitties, Script Kitties, Script Kitties exactly. yep. reusing all of that. And, and they'd be, be very effective. And I think what we've learned in the world is that uh, you know, all, all those attackers still don't go away, right? Uh, we are working on defending against organized cyber criminals. We are working on defending against foreign nation state adversaries, but the, 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 the amateurs ha- have not gone away. And actually just looking at the state of cloud security for a single lone ex-Amazon employee to have leveraged a server-side request forgery vulnerability and a misconfiguration in a web application firewall to single-handedly steal 100 million credit applications probably tells us something about the state of cloud security uh, as compared to a bunch of other areas, right? Uh, so I think we, we need to have, you know, probably more defenses in the area of cloud security and more maturity there to just do better against the amateurs, let alone the organized cyber criminals or nation states. Yeah, yeah we used to talk- Now this is, again, this is probably where I, I uh, have some disagreements with Neil because I think, I think when there's a cloud, when there's a breach in cloud security, when there's something, anything related to a cloud security, we immediately hear about it, right? Everybody knows about the S3 bucket that was open to the public and there was some information on it. Okay, um, I have worked at companies where it's not like the firewalls. Now everybody feels super, everybody feels super secure and confident behind firewalls. But I gotta tell you, a lot of these firewalls over time, I mean, they, on day one, these firewalls are perfect and they're clean and they know what access, but over the years, there's a bunch of rules that nobody knows what they're for. And, and the other aspect of it is um, oftentimes, you know, there's a lot, a lot of times there's errors in the firewall rules and these rules, what you think you're actually doing is not exactly, is the, the rule is not exactly either it's applied wrong, it's applied <laughs> incorrect. I mean, there's just a lot of different things. So I am personally, um, I probably feel more secure running my workloads in an AWS environment, for example, or in a Google environment. Um, if nothing else, I feel like at least the core foundation, um, you know, a Google or an Amazon, they can afford a lot more security application engineers than I can inside in any company, right? So there's a certain, I have a confidence that their inf- the core infrastructure is being protected a lot more than any single company can do. Now, is, 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 is like a public cloud far more new and do we like, I mean, it's one thing, you you know, we've been configuring Cisco firewalls forever to pick on Cisco or, or picking any of your favorite firewalls. We've been doing that for a very, very long time, right? Clearly we're still going through the maturity process, but I don't necessarily buy into by default that, that a public cloud would be less secure uh, than, a, than a hosted environment. If anything, I think you just, when, when, when things happen in a public, in a, in a private environment, I don't think it's, it's as noteworthy and it doesn't create the same level of uh, vibrations that uh, that a public co- company, public cloud does. What do you think so of that? I, I do. I, I think that's great. Um, you know, I, <laughs> let, let, me, let, me, 
<laughs> what a nice guy. Comment on that. So, um, you know, I think that I, I think that whether you're you're in the cloud or you're on premise, um, there is a saying, right? It's uh, you know, there's an acronym here, a KISS, right? Keep it simple, stupid. And I think whether you're in the cloud or whether you're on premise, if you've got a firewall with thousands of rules, it's going to be very hard for uh, anybody to really understand and reason about its security. So uh, complexity is the enemy of security, irrespective of whether you're in the cloud or you're on-premise. Now, uh, where I agree with Moody is that the cloud providers can invest a lot more in security than most typical on-premise data centers can. And security is one of those areas where if you invest a lot of capital, you do it once, you get it right, um, you know, we can get to, we can get to a state where uh, you know, cloud security deployments and the, especially on the infrastructure side are, are better. But I think that one of the challenges in the cloud environment is that companies are still responsible for their application level security and above. And you can mess that up just as easily in the cloud as you can uh, on premise. And I think the challenge is that, you know, a lot of these cloud environments are newer and there just isn't as much expertise. So we need to have more expertise and, um, that that can that can help us get to a to a better state. I, I do think that if I look at some cloud providers, they do provide more tools and more scanning at the application level than than yes. other clouds. So, uh, so 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 choose your choose your cloud carefully. And that's maybe that's also just back to the and the, the seatbelt analogy. I think that cloud providers are providing the seatbelt. Are the customers actually putting it on and wearing it and applying it? Um, there's definitely a lot of scanning, like really good scanning tools. They can they can confirm and see, help you understand your security groups, help you understand, you know, the, the structure, the overall structure and the architecture. The question is, again, as a customer, you have to take advantage of those use tools, run them, and actually do something about them. There's always the problem with, you know, first you got to know the problem, and then it's like, okay, now I know this thing. What am I going to do about it? Do I prioritize it, or do I just kind of keep it, um, ignore it, or you know, it sits in the backlog? Yeah, you got to actually go do something about it. <laughs> um, That's, I mean, uh, we saw with Target, right? Like you have to, you know, there's things we're firing off in, on in the Target breach. I mean, this is the saddest thing is like you have tools that are actually telling you, hey, I think there's something going on here. And um, and whether it's too much noise, I mean, and again, I think we all have those same problems in, in different environments. But yeah, taking taking action is really important. Yeah, yeah what do you mean a signals. great example? In the Target case, right, they they had deployed FireEye. They had paid like $1.6 million for a whole bunch of FireEye uh, sensors just six months before they experienced a breach. And those sensors were alerting. Uh, their team in India was seeing a lot of uh, malware binaries. The categorizations were generic, but there were so many alerts and they were lost in enough noise that by the time they got escalated to the U.S.-based team, they just couldn't be acted on fast enough. So I think there's you know, a lot of issues. In addition to, to, to quote unquote, using the seatbelts, yeah. uh, you've got to make sure that the signal that you're getting from it is high fidelity enough. You know, Moody had made a comment earlier about, you know, half invested and half baked uh, security initiatives. What can happen is that if you deploy a security tool, you don't put enough investment into tuning it properly. Great. You may actually get a false sense of security because it's deployed, but uh, not in a high fidelity amp of fashion that you can, uh, contain attacks that occur uh, and that get actually reported on by the tools. 
Yeah, it's not enough to, to have the technology and to deploy the tool, but you ha actually have to do something with it, to everybody's point, I believe. So, yeah, yeah understand what it's doing. I'm curious, uh, Moody, uh, you, you kind of mentioned some of these already, but I'm curious if you have any other sort of critical takeaways for, for IT executives or CTOs sort of related to your, your work around this book. I mean, you've already talked about some of them, about making sure that you actually go and, you know, you know, deploy the, deploy the technology, keep it simple, um, and actually finish what you're doing. Um, anything else that comes to mind uh, that you might want to share? You know, I, I think there's probably, and this is something I'm, I've been thinking about, even writing more about, I've probably posted an article or two on, on LinkedIn. But I think one of the ideas, um, one of the ideas that came across, and it's funny because we were, as we were writing this, we're, the conversation and the collaboration between Neil and I, I really, really think it's important that CTOs and CISOs and whatever configuration, you know, some organization, one is reporting to the other, um, there's sometimes their peers, it doesn't matter. But what's really, really important is that the CISO and the CTO or the CIO really have to have a good working relationship. I think a lot of times there's almost an adversarial relationship, um, at least I have found where we're not necessarily listening to each other, you know, or one is pounding, you know, one is pounding on the table too hard, the other person is not understanding. And in many ways, part of what was what made this book so much fun to to work with Neil on is that we were actually able to have that kind of conversation and, and again to be able to debate. And I would just encourage, I would encourage people in those roles to make sure that you have a really good working relationship. Because without that, I feel like the companies are gonna just be screwed, quite frankly, if if those two if those two teams and those two functions don't have a good healthy and a good healthy environment doesn't necessarily mean, you know, one always agrees with the other. Right, it does mean that there's got to be good push and pull. I think that's really viable, and I, I think an idea, an idea related to that is this idea. Um, and I try to really try to reinforce that in the book is that, you know, don't fall for the compliance the compliance checklist. Right, don't have don't fall for just having a compliance based security program. You've got to think in the, in this case you have to think less like an auditor inside the company and think more like a hacker. Right. And one of the analogies that, that I love is, you know, when you think about our, our own history, the American Revolution, right, our own history, right, you had the red coats and you had the, you know, they had the, the guerrilla warfare tactics, right? And one group stood in lines, right? The, the British red coats stood in lines, you know, they were aiming their guns and these guys were just getting shot at from everywhere. And I think in many ways, companies, if you just follow a compliance based program, you are like basically like a red coats, right? You're going to stand in line, you look professional, you look organized, you're buttoned down. Okay, but but you have your enemy is taking shots at you from behind you. They're hiding behind trees. They're leading you into a ditch and shooting at you. And I think companies really have to have a very much a hacker mentality because with the people you're dealing with, they're not following a freaking checklist, right? The people you're dealing with, they're finding their, your weakest link. And I think we got to get more organizations to think that way. That you're you're in a you're in kind of this is guerrilla warfare. This is not uh, following a compliance program. So that would be the other the other the other vantage point is. This definitely, it's uh, definitely try to focus on the biggest vulnerabilities and the biggest issues that impact you and your organization, as opposed to following something just that's just generic and you're just doing it almost autom uh, you know, in this aut automatic mode um, just to keep somebody ha yeah. happy. That would be my other thing because we're all limited in time, right? We have this limited time and attention, and I would focus more on that. Those would probably be some of my so, takeaways. So you're saying the hackers aren't taking any uh, breaks for tea time? <laughs> they are not. No. I got it. I got it. 
John, I think we have time for maybe one more if you've got. Yeah, uh, um, absolutely. So, you know, early in this discussion, you guys talked about uh, kind of the the need um, for talent in this field. And it was a great call out, you know, and I kind of call it, uh, I always try to come up with a new phrase, like maybe a glut gap, right, for, uh, for cybersecurity talent. What, so what can we do, we being society, um, what can we do to, to attract that talent, uh, recruit it, um, educate it, and grow it to, to basically where everybody could write a book like this? So if, if, I, if I could take that, uh, given that I serve as co-director of Stanford's Advanced Secure, Cybersecurity Program, uh, one of the things that I'll mention is that, um, you know, in our program for, for, for years, we focused on helping train security professionals and helping them advance their skills. And uh, a couple of years ago, we made a uh, distinct, uh, explicit uh, initiative to help bring more people in the field by creating a Foundations of Information Security course. So I think that the, the, what we need to do is we need to bring more people in the field. And so uh, we need to have more conversations. We need to tell more, more stories. You know, in our, in our Foundations of Information Security course, uh, it starts off with me interviewing Vint Cerf, who was one of the two co-inventors of TCP/IP from way back when. And, you know, I interview him not only on the history of the Internet, but the history of security of the Internet. And the goal there is to help bring more people into, into the fold, as we also do in this book, by telling the stories of the, of the uh, big breaches. And so I think we need to make the topic more accessible, uh, discuss things with fewer acronyms and less yeah. technical jargon. And I think that'll, that'll help, help, us advance the, help us advance the field and bring more people into it. Yeah, almost make it more relatable, more approachable, to your point, yeah. Neil, like kind of accessible. Um, I think that's a great idea. Uh, Moody, were you going to? And I think, I think we, we'd also, I mean, looking at the solar winds attack and what just what has been happening I think there almost needs to be a call to action almost at a, you know, at a national level that one of the ways we can serve this great country that we love is to actually, is to help with the cyber defenses. And I think there's a, there, there needs to be a kind of a new awakening because of what's been happening. And, and I, I think we're definitely not on the leading edge. We're seeing more and more these kinds of attacks having greater and greater impacts. And I think this, the solar winds attack is still like, we're still learning more about how severe that is. So there, there almost needs to be at like a national kind of level, a national um, campaign to raise the awareness. Um, and we need definitely need more of that on the government side. We definitely need more on the on the on the business on the private on the private side. I think there's definitely you know, and, and hopefully again, hopefully this book is in some way an invitation to whether you love you love the consumer data and you want to protect people's data, or love our country and you want to protect its information, its assets. I think there's a, there's different multiple venues here to help, and I think there there's multiple levels of collaboration. I think one one of the reasons that uh, Moody and I work so well together, and you know we fought uh, a whole bunch of uh, you know battles and executed a whole bunch of security initiatives together back when we worked together at LifeLock, um, and I think that that collaboration is super important to be able to have the um, intellectual debates, to have them in a fun, humorous way. Uh, what was great about working in the, on the book together is that we were able to do that also with the, when there wasn't kind of 
uh, as much at stake with regards to, you know, just getting some chapters written, right? So that, <laughs> that work well. And I think that that kind of collaboration needs to extend uh, w- way beyond what happens within a company. As Moody was mentioning, we need to have that level of collaboration between government organizations, between private industry. Uh, Moody mentioned the, the SolarWinds hack. And I think that was, while there have been many, many, many third party compromises before, there have been many foreign nation state uh, attacks uh, that we, we talk about in the book. What was novel is that there was one third party that was used to get into so many government organizations. So I think there is indeed a higher calling here and we need to have uh, more, more collaboration uh, in a way that's uh, conversational without getting bogged down into tools and technologies, but getting focused on uh, the, the the what we're trying to achieve as opposed to how we're trying to achieve it. Well, well let's be clear. Neil is definitely a slave driver, so uh, he, he did not go easy on me. <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one of the interesting things about how um, CISOs and CIOs and CTOs need to work together is, you know, if you think about, if you think about, uh, a CISO's team, uh, they they are um, like a like a, a small group of Jedi's. There, there, there's no way that they can win the battles without uh, the entire infantry and all the lieutenants and generals. And and all the lieutenants, generals, and the the full team is typically not owned by the CISO of their organization. So being able to to collaborate so that you can come and uh, meet eye to eye on what are the target outcomes is, is, is super important. And I think that, um, you know, the, the CISOs organization also serves as independent verification of how are we doing on security posture, um, which, is, which is one of the advantages in having those roles be peers, but th- you can accomplish a similar sort of thing, uh, especially the more uh, potentially more mature an organization is. So, so I'll tell you while um, while, while I might have been tough on Moody, he was, by the way, also pretty tough on me with regards to pushing back. But well, what are we actually trying to to achieve here? You know, I think there's a great point that this should not be about compliance and checking checking the list. Uh, every CT, CTO, CISO, CIO, they have to comply with uh, PCI and SOX and FedRAMP and all these compliance standards. But I think that one of the learnings from the book is that if we focus on the six root causes of breach and putting in place scientifically countermeasures, uh, scientifically effective countermeasures for those six root causes, um, that will go much farther than trying to check every single checkbox and dying from a death from a thousand cuts. Yeah. Well, Neil Moody, we super appreciate you guys uh, coming on today and, and talking with us. I think, you know, it, it, it's nice and easy to understand. So I'm hoping that, uh, people will be able to walk away with uh, learning a few things about uh, some of the biggest breaches and, and kind of why you guys, uh, you know, began this journey in the first place. Um, and of course, thank you, John, for, yeah, for thank you for having me, Paul joining and, and doing all your, your great yeah. homework. Yeah. Which is, which it's is a lot of reading, awesome. Yeah, but it was awesome. But thanks a lot guys. And uh, good, best of luck thanks to you so with much. the book and, uh, and uh, look forward to having you on again sometime. Thank you, guys. Appreciate the invite. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, John. Good luck. See you today. All right. Thank you. See you guys. Bye. Bye, guys.